Welcome to the Proclaim Podcast, where we sit down with missionary disciples and talk all things around sharing Jesus with others. Our hosts are Brett Powell, Heather Kim, Jason Jensen, Eric Chow, and Amber Zoll. Why don't you just take us back to the beginning um, with Our Lady Good Counsel and what you kind of went into and, and when the Lord started to give you vision and, and what happened and what you did and just tell the story. Yeah, I'll, I'll preface it by saying, uh, any, first of all, anything that ever that happened that was good, that, that God gets all the credit for that. Um, and there's still work to do and I left work to do. Um, so I think we're always literally like, man, we just want to tell you about what we did at Our Lady Good Council. It's like, we didn't do jack, you know, but uh, but God did something pretty great and he's continued to do something really great. And we we had a great seat to watch all this happen. And, you know, to some degree he used us, you know, like despite us is how we often said. So ironic, so I was pastor of this parish uh, 12 years. Mary was on the staff there, the team there for the last six. Um, soon as I went there, Mary and I have known each other since I was ordained, her husband and I. Um, so uh, they joined the parish shortly after I got there. Interestingly, I had been in that same area serving in a um, in a marriage and family center that was so within the territory of the parish uh, so maybe five minutes away and a lot of people used to go to the mass that we would celebrate at that other little chapel if you will who belonged to the parish that I ended up going to pastor so they would come there and there were some things happening in the parish there was a ton of great people in the parish but there were some things happening um, it was a, a parish which had a couple of prominent people in politics in it who uh, weren't faithful to the church, and they had prominent roles in the church. So they're leaders in the community, not on board with what the church taught, and yet leaders in the church as well. And so I would routinely have parents come to me and say, like, what should we do here? And my, I said, just leave. Like, leave the parish. Find another place. It's not a good thing when you got to keep explaining to your kids, hey, what, what just happened today, today wasn't good. Well, blessed be God, they didn't listen to me. They stayed, a lot of them, and they they kept the soil really fruitful for when I got there uh, three years later and became pastor of the parish. So um, so I got there in, I think, 2007, it would have been, left this past June, 2019. And uh, when I got there, it was all my friends priest friends and late, quite frankly, thought I was getting punished for going there. So the parish was massively in debt, like $7 million in debt. Um, great people again. Um, but I think it was, um, it was a place that um, had a lot of money, uh, a lot of intelligence, really highly educated people who surprisingly to me, when I would talk to them, would just repeatedly say, Father, we just want to be taught. Like, we don't know. And so uh, I went there with the intention of trying to uh, do everything I could to um, get involved in every way I could to try to make it a family. And uh, to try to say, I I've come here ready to preach the gospel and to help you understand not only what the church teaches, but why. Because I'm convinced um, 
that this is where life is. At the end of the day, as a bishop I know says, it's either God and his love or it's nothing at all. So I want to help lead you into an encounter. So for about six years or so, my approach was pretty much load a shotgun and just shoot anything that moved, you know? <laughs> so started tons of different events. I love to teach uh, and I love to evangelize. So, you know, uh, did a Bible study every week. You know, we get a couple hundred people too. We do, um, uh, there was a, some really faithful people who taught RCIA for folks who wanted to come into the church. They asked if they could continue to teach it for a few years. I said, yeah, you do that. I'm going to teach RCIA to the Catholics. So we started doing RCIA for Catholics, where people who are already Catholic, we would bring through everything that we would bring a, a potential uh, convert through. Um, anything and everything like that. So we just tried to be present, teach, shatter misconceptions that people had about the church, about Jesus, about what a man looks like, a woman looks like. And we saw a ton of fruit. It was wonderful. I mean, it was really great. Um, place became uh, a family a little bit more. Um, it was very alive. So six years into it, it was really known to be a place where the spirit was moving. Um, great teaching. Great preaching. You can say that. I can't. Yeah, there was great teaching. was <laughs> <laughs> that pastor? <laughs> awesome pastor. Yeah. I mean, like... But I would say he further till tilled the soil. Right, it was like he was breaking up some rock. There were already some, there was already some softness in it, but I would describe it as high impact teaching and transformative preaching. And you could tell that there was a docility and an openness to the people in the pews. They were hungry. We started doing missions again, which was a great combination. I, I, I'll share, this is really significant, especially for um, priests who are listening. So the first thing that I did, and, and, and the Lord just taught me this from like my infancy as a priest, the first thing I did was just start to do an exposition every day. So I'm just convinced exposition's the wrecking ball. And um, so I had an experience maybe a year or so after I was ordained of uh, Mary had actually been on this retreat with a whole set of folks who were coming into the church it was a great retreat. People more or less asked for, how can we bring some of this experience that was on retreat, the prayerful environment, back to the parish uh, where I was serving as an associate at the time? And so we started doing an evening mass, uh, not have to worry about getting our cars out of the parking lot or whatever. And we would pray over people afterwards. And then we'd go on for like hours. You know, we'd mass would get over at eight. We'd pray till midnight over people. And it was great, but then it was getting exhausting and there's people waiting in line for four hours and that wasn't fair to them, whatever. And so one day the Lord made it abundantly clear uh, that was not the plan. Uh, that was good. He had a better plan. And so uh, mass came that week and I just said, um, hey, tonight we're going to do something a little different. Uh, rather than just be available for prayer ministry afterwards, I'm just going to expose the Blessed Sacrament on the altar. I'm going to put a couple of kneelers in the sanctuary. If you feel led to come up and pray before the Lord, great. And we'll just have the Lord exposed for a half hour. I'll do benediction. We'll get out of here. So mass ends. I turn my back, go to the tabernacle, remove the blessed sacrament. My head's down. I put the Lord on the altar. And I can hear all this commotion. I figure it's just people going out, putting their coats on, leaving. I go to the side of the altar to kneel down. And by the time I get on my knees in the sanctuary are roughly 50 people. Two kneelers. 50 people. It was like they ran to the Lord on the altar. And I'm looking at this, I'm a year ordained. 
and exposition wasn't part of my life at all growing up. I never saw this. And so I'm looking at this just kind of mystified as Jesus is on the altar uh, under the appearance of bread, right? And I have, I'll call it a vision again. I don't know what to call it. But I see the Lord standing on the altar. And he's facing the people. And then at a certain point, he turns towards me. And he looks at me. And then he, he bows and kind of extends his hands and looks back at me. And he simply says, John, don't you see how easy this is? You just have to put me out and I will work. And so from that moment on, like 22 years ago, like everywhere I've gone, I've, I've either tried to build an adoration chapel where we can do 24 seven adoration or to expose the Eucharist as often as we can. So long way of saying the first thing I did when I got to good counsel after trying to get to know people was just saying to folks, hey, I'm gonna expose the Eucharist every day. And if you wanna come, great, but I'm gonna be there before mass. And, uh, and that served as um, the necessary wrecking ball or the rototiller, whatever image you want, for him just to plant things in people, I'm convinced. Um, so that was about the first six years. And then um, two things happened, three things happened real quick. One was uh, Mary was involved in our teen ministry. She was on retreat again with us. We had this amazingly powerful retreat with our kids. So movements often happen in the church, starting with youth. You guys know that. And sure enough, it was happening here. And, and the challenge on this retreat was to the kids to drop their nets. You know, like you were describing earlier, like I'm all in, you know. And so we actually gave them fishing nets at the start of the retreat and just said, hey, if you feel like you're able to at a point, we just invite you to, we had the Eucharist exposed the whole weekend. We did everything in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, just leave your net in front of the Lord and tell him, I'm in. Um, be like Peter and Andrew and James and John. So all the nets were there by Sunday morning. And so we went back to the parish. And at Mass uh, that night, I explained what had happened. And I invited one of the kids up to give testimony. And then all the kids came up. And they sat in the sanctuary, like on the steps of the sanctuary, joined their hands, put their nets in front of the altar, and one of the girls looked out to the parish and just said, we did this, can't you? Oh, amen. Yeah. Talking to the, wow. to the, we're in for Jesus. We're sold out for Jesus. Are you? And so we're coming off of this retreat, and I'm talking to uh, another woman that uh, we're close with who's on our team. I just said, her name is also Mary. I said, Mary, I got to find a way to take the whole parish on retreat. How the heck do you take 12,000 people on retreat because that was the size of the parish. Pause. Same day, she and I, this other woman, were having a conversation with a team of people from the Archdiocese about moving confirmation to a younger age because I had asked permission from the Archbishop to do this. Because high school doesn't seem to be the age when kids are most docile to the movement of the Holy Spirit. So I just said, hey, can we try this at another place? Uh, and he said, yes. So we're having a meeting. And like in a break in the meetings, one of these women comes up to me from the archdiocese and said, this is really good, but what are you going to do for the parents? I'm like, I know, I'm working on that. She says, you should look at Alpha. And, uh, I've looked at Alpha. I'm just not interested. It's canned. It's not Catholic. I don't want anything to do with it. She's like, you should look at Alpha. I'm like, yeah, whatever. So I knew the guy who ran it, who's now on our team here with Axe. 
Um, and and I, I knew him well, you know, but, uh, and he kept saying, you should use this, John. I'm like, I don't want to do it. And um, so we ordered it and um, we spent more or less the day, set aside the day to watch it. I have zero expectations of this. Um, and I find myself, you know, watching the first talk and, uh, you know, I kind of like pull out my pen real discreetly. I'm writing some things down that I hear Nikki say, like, that's actually really good. <laughs> yeah. Then, I, then I'm, you know, notebooks wide open. I'm taking copious notes as he's saying things. I think we watched three of the, of the uh, talks at the most. I looked at the person next to me. I said, we're canceling everything we do. We're doing this. And we're going to do it seven days a week as often as we can. I want everybody in the parish to go through it. And my goal this year is a thousand people. And she went, what? And I went, this is all we're going to do because um, God had made it abundantly clear to me that the wound of our parish was we had people who had been sacramentalized but not evangelized. And they would tell you that. They didn't Ask them, do you have a friendship with Jesus? And they'd go, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm Catholic. Of course not. <laughs> and I'm like, no, wrong answer. You know, so... So we decided to scrap everything we were doing. And we had like 3,500 programs a year that we had going on in the parish. So when I scrapped everything, like this was a massive lift. So we wanted to eliminate every objection someone could have to um, busy Tuesday night. No Bible. problem. Wednesday morning. Yeah, uh, that's right. Amen. Saturday yeah. afternoon. So seven days a week, 10 times a day. And sure enough, we had a thousand people go through it the first time. Yeah, 10 times mm -hmm. a week. So... Um, that was, Mary talked about a marker earlier, that was a huge marker. Overnight, something changed in our parish. I did it because I wanted people to have this encounter with Jesus. What I totally underestimated was how powerful this encounter was going to be between one another. And so I was one of those guys in seminary, I kept hearing, you know, like older priests talk about how important community was. I'm like, Community, community, like who needs community? You just need God. And I realized, no, you actually need community too. You need people. You need people to do this with. And so I just saw a big parish become small. Suddenly people who've been sitting next to each other at mass for years, but who didn't know each other's names, knew each other's names, they were hanging out. And so the parish became small, massive amounts of people said, because we did surveys, Mary, Mary was the one who ran all this. That's where she really started. They would tell us we had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. I mean, a huge percentage of people. And then we all of a sudden had a tool that could be used for the unchurched. So we started like pretty much every place that starts with Alpha. We started doing it for the people in the pews first. But by the time we left, I think what? 5,000 people maybe? Between five and 6,000 by the time it was all said and done. So we, we started to grow the alphas, right? So one of the first things we did after that initial run with 1,000 people was to move it out into homes as quickly as we could. So I think we took maybe 500 people or through bars the next term. Or wherever. And then we started to move into bars. And then the homes just started to multiply. And then it just kind of became a staple. And um, I mean, we saw, so you know, in week 10, uh, I think the topic is, does God heal today? So we saw physical healing. We saw emotional healing. We saw spiritual healing. We, marriages got healed. People would tell us, I no longer find mass to be a chore 
or I just bought my first Bible and I just went back to confession and it was 35 years. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. It was just so incredible. And literally overnight we became an evangelizing parish. So that was, so that was like the beginning, but then we had to start entertaining. The question is what is God asking of us next to continue to create community? What did we need to do for the people in the pews that, that, that captive audience that is Sundays? So we continued to pray strategically, right? And diagnostically, like, like, like what's the next area of the parish that God is asking us to take back? So Alpha was kind of like the ignition switch for that pathway to move deeper into discipleship and disciple making and ultimately right mission. Oh, I can imagine uh, in those first few days, that first decision to cancel everything, I can imagine for some of our listeners uh, wondering how messy was that and how much kickback did you get from other ministries, from, you know, from other leaders that may not have been fully on board. And I mean, the idea of switching and moving from a bunch of ministries to one is certainly a big change, but the transition getting into that would have had to have been kind of messy. Could you speak to that a little bit? So it was really just the first term that we put ministries in neutral. Okay. They were still, they were, they were going to resume the following term. So we started in the fall in September, in January, they could start humming around again. We didn't really start looking at everything the parish was offering until we got serious about organizational health. And, that, and that's the next piece of that. Obviously, you're not going to win everybody over to this thing called Alpha. And it, as we know, it's not a program. It's, it's an experience, right? But we were able to win some people over. We had some people who had been running Bible studies for eight years. And they, they just were really honest. They said, sell us on this. And they got sold. And they got won. And they became some of our, our more faithful Alpha leaders. And they were leaders that could also raise up leaders. So that was really powerful. Yeah. And we didn't cancel, we didn't cancel our CIA and we didn't cancel Sacramento prep. Yeah, it was it. But I think the, but one, the, the reason it worked, I think was, um, or a big reason that it worked was you. I'd been there for six years by that point. And so most of the people who just didn't like me were gone. <laughs> um, but I think people just trusted. Trust. Like, so I could never, as a pastor, I could never could have done something like this, like in year one, but by year six, like I, people knew me, I knew them, they knew what I was about, they knew where we were going, they had a sense for the parish. Um, so yeah, it might be a little out of the box, but we'll give it a shot because we trust you. And so um, that's one of the hard things of being a pastor is you can't accelerate time. And so it takes time to get to know a place and for a place to get to know you. And, uh, and you just got to let that happen, you know? It'd be like adopting a child into your family. Like, it takes time to get to know everybody. In, in our case, we're adopting a father into the family. Uh, the other huge marker for us was, so almost right after Alpha began, um, I was involved with uh, the Archbishop here in a leadership team for what became a synod that held on the new evangelization. But it wasn't a synod yet. We didn't know what we were going to do. Uh, we just knew we were going to do something. I mean, the, the Archbishop wanted to see what the spirit was saying to Detroit. And so there was a group of us that would get together and um, it was him and another man who's now the Archbishop of Guam, who's Archbishop Mike Burns. So he was kind of the point person for this. So we hired 
the Catholic Leadership Institute out of Philadelphia to come and work with this group of people, uh, maybe 12 or 14 of us, uh, to help us, you know, become a team and then like discern what the Lord was asking us. So we spent uh, maybe three hours uh, every other week for a couple of months with the people from Catholic Leadership Institute talking about how we were going to do what we were going to do. Not what we were going to do, but how we were going to do what we were going to do, which and if I had known in advance, I would have just like blown my head out. Um, I'm a total type A, like drive things. Like I don't have time to waste about, you guys figured out the by the time we got done, you know, after maybe two, three months, I realized I know these people around this table better than I know the people I've been working with for six years. We have better meetings. Um, we're more vulnerable. We have better conflict. Uh, we get more done. And I'm sold suddenly on organizational health. So this was pre-amazing parish uh, that the uh, conference and movement hadn't begun yet. Um, CLI put me on to, I just tried to find everything I could on organizational health and I stumbled on Pat Lancioni's work. And I was going on sabbatical and I spent the sabbatical reading everything he wrote and realizing like, we have to do this because we've led all these people into an encounter now. We got all this stuff going on, but the core what I would call the spinal cord of the body, which is the staff. So our vision is the, the parish as a whole is the body, the hands, the eyes, the ears, the feet. The staff's the spinal cord. If the spinal cord is pinched in any way, the body can't function. Here's the, the painful reality. Most parish spinal cords are not pinched. They're broken. And everybody knows it. And nobody does anything about it. So um, we made a commitment to work with somebody to to put uh, to implement and facilitate Lencioni's work, the advantage for us. So now we've got two huge lifts going on. We've got all this massive evangelization stuff going on, and at the same time, us as a staff is going through the hard work of okay, we we feel like God has called us to leave the familiar behind, like on the wall behind us. He's calling us to become something new. I don't really know what it is. I just know he's leading us. Like, I even think we're gonna blow up the whole org chart. No one's gonna lose a job, but we have a 1960s org chart, like most Catholic churches. What's a 2018 org chart look like? And let's start filling in those boxes and put people in those boxes and start responding to the needs of today as opposed to like the battle from yesteryear, right? And so the image we use is it was like living in a home as you are remodeling it. And if, if we're doing all the work that we were normally doing and we're doing this work, which was really a heavy lift and it was hard, but, but so worth it. And so by the time we got done, boom, we became a team because we were a great staff, but a terrible team. We had a lot of politics, we had meetings after meetings, uh, we had silos, we had, you know, all sorts of things like that. So that was a total game changer for us too. So now all of a sudden the spinal cord got healthy. We got clarity on really big questions like, 
Why does God want Our Lady of Good Counsel to exist? Okay, well, once we know the answer to that, we can start saying no to all these things that, that we've been doing and have, have, built, have borne fruit, but that's not why we exist. Like the church down the street can do that, and that's awesome. I'm good with that. This is what we do. And so we became close. You know, the staff really became a family. We began to develop a culture of prayer together. We started to pray together every day for a half hour. Um, we spent time together intentionally. Um, our work was so transformed. We had great conflict. Uh, and then that rippled out into the parish. And all of a sudden, parish knew, like, rather than, well, they do alpha. Like, the parish knew, no, what we're about is offering people a life-changing encounter with Jesus. That's why we exist. And then we just build from there. So we had tremendous clarity um, on who we were and what God was calling us to be. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many things running through my mind. I mean, it's what I see in, in hearing your story and hearing so many other stories where the parish is really on the way to renewal. There's a, there's a few very fundamental things that are happening. First of all, there has to be this uh, revealed understanding that God himself is in charge, that he is the leader of the parish, and that all of us as leaders, the pastor in particular, has to take on Jesus strategic model, which is I do what the father's doing. I say what the father's saying, anything else I don't want to be a part of. There's this narrowing, there's this Lord, you're in charge. And I, father Bob Bedard, our famous Canadian yeah. pastor, right? Just give God permission to lead. Yeah. You know, we always are in a posture following. And then there's going to be this strategic organizational health kinds of things, because the only way you can say no to anything, which becomes so, so many distractions in, in pastoral ministry, is to have that deep burning yes inside. And that deep burning yes has to be born from a healthy place. If it's not healthy, you'll never get to that deep burning yes. It just, it won't exist. It'll always be, you know, pseudo shallow conflict and not the real stuff that permeates the, the truth of it. So there's just such consistency to your story, to so many parishes story. And, you know, it's just another beautiful illustration for sure. Yeah, thanks for sharing. But we've got a few minutes left, and I want to talk about Acts 29. So let's totally shift into that. I mean, we could go on and on, guys. I wish we had more time, but we don't. So um, why don't you just give us, I mean, one of the things that I see when I read it and, and hear Mary when you were talking about is, you know, God wants his world back. And there's a sense of urgency to that, too. So, I mean, we might be able to get into the, you know, God as architect and all that, but what is animating your desire to move into this space with Acts 29 and help as many parishes and pastors as possible. So at the core of what's animating it is uh, uh, what the Archbishop began here in Detroit, which is uh, now known as Unleash the Gospel, right? So we, we had a synod. Uh, from the synod came a document that he wrote, which in my mind anyway, is one of the most spectacular things that's ever been written in the church. That's both uh, very good theologically and and not lofty left up here. It's really practical at the same time on uh, what does a culture of evangelization look like uh, in the church and in parish life today. So that, that was at the heart of it. We feel really honored and blessed to have him as our shepherd here. Um, and in that letter, he talks at one point about how we are living currently the 29th chapter of Acts. And uh, that's always spoken to us. I mean, it's spoken to a lot of people. I know a lot of evangelicals use the expression too. Um, so I asked the Archbishop uh, maybe two years ago when I knew 
that my time as pastor was going to be coming to a close if he would be open to uh, us exploring something different next. And he says, well, what? And I said, uh, he didn't say it quite like that, but um, so what, what, are you, what are you thinking? I said, I don't know. I just think God might want us to work with people in, in a different setting, not as a pastor, but to work with priests. He said, yeah, let's pray about it. So we did. And uh, we landed on this. So there's five of us in this team, Acts 29. Four of us worked at the parish at Our Lady of Good Counsel. So we know each other really well. We saw transformation happen. But having said that, we're not trying to clone Our Lady of Good Counsel in the least. Like what happened there happened there. Um, and then the fifth guy who works with us uh, used to work in diocesan life in the Diocese of Lincoln and the Archdiocese of Detroit. So we're just five people right now. We're about to hire a sixth because uh, we just are growing. We have some needs. So uh, we would describe ourselves as something like um, an itinerant group of missionaries who run a startup. How about that? So um, we, we um, at, at the heart of what we do, we would say uh, we unleash the gospel and the power of the gospel to equip uh, the ordained and lay leaders to rebuild the church. So we think um, for years I've been, uh, I've felt uh, burdens not the right way spoken to in the words that Jesus spoke to Francis. You know, uh, go Francis and rebuild my church, which as you can see is obviously in ruins. And we feel like the Lord's speaking that again to us, uh, us, the church. Um, and of course the, the first thing that's in ruins is me, my life. So the Lord wants to rebuild me. Uh, and then he wants to use us uh, to help rebuild the church. Um, we're just really passionately convinced that we're fortunate um, to be alive right now and that God has destined everybody for this moment. So no one's alive right now by chance. Um, we, we use a lot. We try to impress into people uh, the words of Joan of Arc that, you know, I'm not afraid. God is with me. I was born for this. And we believe that. And we, we not only believe that about us, we believe that about everybody. Like you were born for this moment and God could have created you at any time in history. He destined you to be alive now, whether it's in Vancouver or Detroit or Memphis, Tennessee, doesn't matter. And, and that's not an accident. And this now that we're living in is a unique time uh, for two reasons. The world is crying in a very particular way. Usually uh, at its root is despair. Uh, which is manifested in suicide and drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And there's so many statistics for that. But it's also uh, a unique time because the church is crying right now. And so that's happening not only in the confusion that we see in the church at the, at the hierarchy, um, the, the sex abuse crisis, the anger and the frustration and the confusion that so many people have. And so we would argue if Jesus founds the church, to be the means by which the world's cry is answered. We can encounter God's love, experience our identity as his beloved sons and daughters, regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. And most people experience the church through the parish. And most places, I would say, parish life is broken. Then the question becomes, how does the parish get well? And I don't think there's an answer to that. Uh, we don't claim to have the answer to that, but we do think God has showed us what we call three essential principles for transforming the church, 
whether it's a parish or a diocese or a whatnot, family, yeah, or, or a family, the domestic church, right? So real, the, the, the principles are simply these. First, to, uh, to learn to see again with a biblical vision. So get clarity on who's God, why do you make the world, uh, why is it messed up, what's he done about it, if anything? If he's done anything about it, why is it still messed up? And how should I respond to that? And from this should flow the deep abiding conviction as you see a dimension of Jesus, which I don't think most people hear, um, that we have unshakable confidence in the Lordship of Jesus, regardless of how it appears right now in the church or in the world. Like God is not nervous right now. We are, <laughs> um, he's not, he's not anxious. So first principle is just get clarity on who God is again. Second principle is it's not enough to be a staff. You gotta do the hard work of moving from a staff to a team and then a family. Again, because the, the staff's the spinal cord and the parish isn't gonna function if the staff's not healthy. But all of this is for the purpose of what's behind us on this wall, which is um, we would argue, we call this the principle God is the architect. What it means is simply this. We passionately believe that God already has a blueprint for every single parish. And the scriptural foundation of that is Exodus, where God says to Moses uh, in 25 to 29 about the sanctuary, build according to the pattern I will show you. And so Moses' task is not to have a brainstorming session with a bunch of people and go, hey, what do you think we should do? Um, it's to get on his face and ask the Lord, Lord, what's the plan? But in order to do that, you got to have other people with you to go into the meeting tent to pray because God doesn't just let the, tent, the plan fall from the sky. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get around a table, and we're going to go at it. <laughs> like, what'd you hear? And so the discernment happens in first prayer, but then conversation, but conversation between people who have gone through the hard work of being able to be vulnerable with each other so they can trust each other, so they can have good conflicts and so they can arrive at God's intended result, not mine or hers. So everything we do is for that purpose. We, we, we try to, you know, our work is really aimed at trying to get a bishop or a pastor into the trailer if you will, like the construction trailer where the blueprints are, where they can see the blueprint and then they can go, uh, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> One of the things as you're talking, Father John, about, you know, the state of the church and this kind of thing. I'm going to say something. I want your comment or your thoughts on it, because I see as one of the graces for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that the current state of things is allowing us to finally really look at current reality for what it is because we had been fat for a long time. We'd been full of numbers and things happening. And if you wanted to see that, that you could see, right? But it's like, unless you really know where you are, you can't even begin to have a visionary process. And the analogy that I use is, you know, you're going to a shopping mall and you want to go to a store and you find the store. Well, that's great to have clarity in what the, where you're trying to go. But if you don't know where that little red dot is, you're still going to be lost. And one of the graces, I think, for the church right now, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, is recognize there are systems and things that are really broken. Like they're absolutely broken and they produce bad fruit. And right. so let's 
honestly look at where we are. I mean, we live in a, in a church in Vancouver. We're still building parishes, but a lot of that has to do with immigration, not evangelization. And so mm-hmm. what are we actually seeing? What are we actually noticing that the father is doing and wanting to do? So anyways, I think that's one of the graces of being humbled right now, frankly, as a church is to actually see with accurate detail, you know, confront the brutal facts in Jim Collins language of current reality, that it's yeah. not all good. We ask a question oftentimes uh, of people and do a little presentation simply entitled, what time is it? So uh, a friend of ours uh, has written a great piece on uh, pastoral strategies and evangelization. And he, he just tries to describe that more or less in the, in the 2000 years of the church has been two eras that the church has lived in. One is a, an era where um, the soil, if you will, of the culture was formed by the gospel. People used scriptural language. Uh, it informed education and uh, all, everything, really. And even if everybody wasn't aspiring to be a saint, um, it was still the kind of culture which was conducive to living a Christian life. That culture's gone, right? That was, that was pretty much the 5th century or the 4th century until maybe 150 years ago in some parts of Europe and more recently for us. Um, the other culture is a culture where the hostile, the, the environment is hostile to the gospel. In that first, in that first culture, all you need to do is maintenance. That's, what, that's really all you got to do. It's a good thing, actually. Just maintain it. Keep it going. And the temptation is mediocrity. In this era, which he calls an apostolic age, the temptation is cowardice because uh, it's going to cost to live a Christian life. And... Um, it's going to be obvious. And so what, if you do maintenance in that age, you die. And so what we want to try to do is ask people, what, so what time was, what are we living in? Is it this age or is it this age? And then how is it that the apostles living in this age, when the culture was hostile, unlike us, oftentimes in the church today, they weren't discouraged. They weren't depressed over numbers. They weren't anxious about money. They didn't have any resources. What did they have? They had the conviction that Jesus was Lord. They saw lives change. They knew that uh, life apart from God is a desolate wasteland. And they had a message to bear. And they did. And they grew exponentially. And the world changed. Like, we talk about the new evangelization all the time. I don't think we believe the old evangelization actually worked. It's the year for crying out loud. Like, we just say that to people all the time. What year is it? Well, it's 2020. But from what? Like, don't take that for granted. Like, the whole world dates the year to our Lord. Why? Because people's lives got changed. They didn't get changed because of programs. They got changed because people saw other people who had encountered Jesus, and they said, I want what you have because it's either him or it's nothing. That's what I'm hungering for. Mary, maybe you can speak to that too, because I know this whole idea that evangelization is people is not programs is something that just resonates so deeply. Uh, You know, maybe speak to that a little bit. Um, I I, I find I have to make a confession. I loathe the word programs. I just, I can't even say it because it's about people. We, We need to invest in the person that's right in front of us. Right? So, Oftentimes, at least in the chair that I sat at Good Council, 
it was the norm for parishes in our own diocese or around the country to call and say, what program are you going to run next? Well, no, I mean, sometimes I refer to it as a Netflix mentality. Like, like what's the next great program out there? And we'll just open up, maybe I'm probably dating myself now, the DVD player, whatever it is, or we're going to live stream X. And that's not the approach. Or we simply copy and paste what Good Counsel did or Holy Family did or Divine Child did. But we're forgetting what the needs of the people are right in front of us. So um, it, I, in, in my mind, it just goes back to relational ministry. Who, who's discipling you? Um, who are you discipling and who are you willing to invest in? And until we get, until we can come to grips with that, programs don't convert people, relationships convert people. Your story touched me. Your story touched me. Like I want to do life with you, right? I saw someone invest in me and, and uh, I saw what happened after we, after we created space, right? For people to encounter the Lord on Alpha or on any number of other relational Bible studies that we had but we need community and we need one another and, and, and running the next best thing isn't gonna make it. We have to be willing to invest in people. The reality is each and every one of us are broken and we're looking for someone to be real with. We're looking for someone that we can take off our masks with and just confess, I'm tired of faking fine. We're willing to meet with transparency and talk about whatever it is, is way back in your history. And for most of us, we talked about this earlier. We're getting ready to go to healing the whole person with Dr. Bob Schutz down in Tallahassee, Lord. I mean, gosh, what a, what, a, what a gift he is to the church right now. But most of our wounds happened on early in our childhood. I'm not unique. Father John's not unique. We all have a touch point. We're, you know, you talked earlier, Eric, about that sacred ground that we walk on. We, we want to do life together. We want to walk in someone else's mess. I love programs, but I'd rather, I'd rather get real with the brother or the sister that God's placed right here in my path and walk with them where they are. It's that- such a key principle. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, people first, right? And when you study the pages of the gospel and you see how, you know, the, the, the people of that time would run away from the religious leaders, but they ran to Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't his holiness because he was the most holy, but it's that he created space for them to be safe in relationship. And they, he did not make it a prerequisite to get your life all figured out to enter friendship with him, you know? And that's one I think one of the graces of, of the church now, and this is a grace from Pope Francis, is that we have to be prepared to go in those messy places right. and to stay with people in it right. so that they, that, you know, belong first, right? That whole idea is just so it's so key and it's such a privilege to be able to journey with people in that way and to hold space. And I'm hearing a a lot of encouragement around uh, having a heart of humility and and recognizing that God brings all the power into ministry and into what we're we're doing, whether it's in Acts 29 or Proclaim. And and for our listeners to know that if you're wondering, uh, you know, how God is asking you to, to be used in the mission and you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not a, John, a Father John, or I'm not a Brett, or I'm not a Mary, or I'm not a whomever, a, you know, ministry celebrity, or whatever you might want to call it. Um, you know, what we're hearing today in this conversation is, no, 
we're all broken. And uh, when we respond to the invitation that God gives to us in, um, in our lives, uh, we can see God move in that dramatically beyond our expectations. If I can just add uh, uh, two thoughts. The first one is, you know, we all live on social media. You know, we've got, we tweet, we're on Instagram, we have our Facebook pages and those virtual friendships and those platforms certainly are useful for a lot of things, but they're not a replacement for authentic friendship. I think we've lost, so we talk about accompaniment, we talk about discipling someone. I think it goes back to recapturing what it means to be a friend. What does friendship actually look like? When we, you, you had mentioned earlier, Eric, you know, you wanted to talk about the art of invitation. We can't even begin to extend invitation until we know what it means to be a friend. And I think even before that, we have to recapture what it means to be human. And I think that just goes back to being authentically real and transparent and just being who we are. And I'm a mess and you're a mess. And we're all a mess. But we know Jesus came to heal us all. Can we just hang out together? And how can I serve you? How can I meet your needs? How can I share what God's given to me? Because it's just not for me. It's for you too. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, or leave a review. We'd love to hear what you think.